So I wanted to start by thanking you for your practice. It's felt very nice to to sit with you and and um, I've been a little bit surprised by the stillness and the real the, the, the groundedness that I'm feeling. Um, I know for many of you uh, or for some of you this is a first retreat. Um, for some of you, this is the first time ever meditating. So that's quite a, you know, Dharma field that uh, we've created. And there's something amazing about being in a Dharma field and practicing in community with each other. Um, we're able to go beyond limits that we might have thought we've had or that we might have actually had when we're on our own but to sit with each other um, and to have the support of the schedule and have the support of you know, all the different aspects of practice here at IRC, um, it's kind of amazing what, what can be possible. So um, it's just uh, to share my appreciation and gratitude and, um, and also acknowledging that this practice is not easy, or it's not always easy, or it's not um, necessarily designed to be easy. Um, and it, almost in a way, like if it were easy, I don't know if it would really be worth your time. You know, if it, um, so something in the, in the difficulties, in the challenges, in the places that we get stuck is where real practice happens, is where real growth and learning and insight happens. You know, so if um, one person could come and do sit retreat and, you know, and just be fine and sit and have, you know, relatively no discomfort and breathe and follow the schedule, um, and that, and that would be fine. That would be okay. Um, and another person could come and hear the same instructions and have a lot of challenges sitting and feel um, that there's kind of a, so hard to get comfortable and so hard to, to calm the mind and so hard to stay with the breath and so difficult to, 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 to follow the schedule. Um, but that person stays and hangs in there and just keeps coming back and keeps coming back, um, you know, not to, not to get into comparing, but there's a way that through, through our difficulties, through what's challenging, um, you know, that's where we really reap the fruits of the practice. And, um, so it's this journey, you know, and, um, so I, I like the idea of meditation retreat as a journey and practice as a journey. And there's something for me very, um, maybe I just like traveling and journeys or something, but something kind of open-ended and, you know, there's this movement, there's this, we're going somewhere, there's something, something's happening. Um, and I, 
but at the same time, um, remembering that practice um, is not about getting something we're not, and it's about it's not about getting to some place that we don't already have. So it's a little bit of this paradox. Um, I just finished a book, um, and it was one of the first books that I've listened to on, ta- you know, on the phone, on tape. You know, there's no tape anymore. <laughs> Virtual tape. Um, and it's the autobiography of a um, kind of a famous psychotherapist. And some of you might know uh, Irvin Yalom, who's uh, you know, a longtime Stanford uh, professor and a psychotherapist. And I think what he's most famous for is are these books which are collection of short stories and they're, I think he calls them tales of psychotherapy and they're, they're about his patients and, um, uh, and kind of teaching stories and just, and he's a wonderful writer anyway. So he, he's in his late eighties now and he has his autobiography and the title of his autobiography is Becoming Myself. Becoming Myself. And I thought that's such a great um, way of describing this practice and like the journey of this practice. Because in some ways it's, it's, there's a paradox that we're on a journey and it's a journey that I think we hope will involve um, growth and transformation and learning. Um, but at the same time, um, the, the way to walk this path, the way to go on this journey is to be here, to learn to be here, to learn to be right where we are and open to right where we are fully um, and to fully um, embrace um, this moment. Um, you know, and, and so, and so this idea of that we become ourselves. Um, and so that poem I shared yesterday, um, just listening, um, without extra mind that grasps the jewel-like raindrops dripping from the eaves are myself. Um, You know, when we are able to relax the mind that grasps, when we're able to soften the mind that demands, that um, strongly, compulsively desires, that pushes things away, resists. Um, when that when that mind can soften and relax, we we open to the possibility of just listening, just seeing, just being. And in some way, the boundaries between self and other, the boundaries between self and world start to soften, start to relax. Um, and so I think this is, is, is such a great uh, 
architecture of our practice. And um, there's another uh, Zen teaching that's sometimes quoted that is something like, um, to study the Buddha way is to study ourself, is to study the self. And then to study the self is to forget the self. You know, so this idea of um, being with our mind, being with our heart, examining our experience, it's not meant to be in the service of becoming more self-centered and, and self-absorbed, and we're already very good at that. Um, but it's, it's really in the service of being able to let go. Um, and, uh, um, and, and so what is it to forget the self? What, what does that mean to forget the self? One understanding of that is when we are so involved, so absorbed in, in the moment, in our experience. And I think we've all had these, we all know what this feels like. You know, it might be reading a book. It might be doing some kind of physical activity or making love or something where we, we lose ourselves. We lose our self-consciousness. Um, so this is one understanding of to forget the self. Um, and then this, this teaching goes on to say, um, so it's to, stu to, to study, to study Buddhism is to study the self, to study the self is to forget the self. And then to forget the self is to be awakened by all things, you know, so we're allowing when we're, when we're here, when we're present, when we're not so self occupied, um, anything can awaken us. It might be the, the drops of, of rain after, after a storm. It might be the sound of the bell. It might be, um, you know, a anything in our experience, anything in everything is, is calling us to wake up. So anyway, that's, that's a little Zen um, teaching that I'm quite fond of because it's a, it's a good reminder that um, this practice is not about some set of ideas that came to us from a long time ago. And it's not about studying lots of books or memorizing lots of teachings or chants or even all great things. But it's really about um, studying ourself and learning to be who we are and that all the teachings and everything we need to know is already inside of us, um, which is in a way um, so counter to how we tend to think that it's very hard to accept that. You know, we're always looking for something. We're looking for, um, you know, a better you know, teaching, a better teacher, a better, I used to look for cushions a lot. You know, if only I have the right Zafu, that will, <laughs> you know, it's definitely have a good Zafu is good, good to have. Um, but um, I remember one time I was meeting an, an old teacher who 
had been in residence for something like 50 years at San Francisco Zen Center. And he was so eccentric that um, he couldn't, he didn't really teach much publicly, but he would meet with students one-on-one. -on -one. And I always liked, I always liked meeting with him. And so we'd meet in the dining room at this meditation center and he'd light a candle and he'd light incense and we'd sit in chairs and, and talk to each other. And I remember asking him, I'm really, I have this terrible conflict because I'm trying to decide, should I study with this teacher or this teacher? And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, you know, they'd be working with the same material. <laughs> so I don't think the outcome would be much different. <laughs> so yeah, right. Um, so this looking, you know, sometimes we can be looking and looking outside of ourselves. And, and this reminder that um, um, all the, the contents of our experience, however they happen to be, are not only enough, they're perfect. They're perfect to practice whatever is happening, whatever struggles, whatever joys, whatever repetitive thoughts, whatever physical discomfort. That's it. That's exactly it. That's what's happening in this moment. That's what we're here to open to and to um, study and to understand. Um, so um, many of you have probably heard of this teaching called the Four Noble Truths, which is um, you know, one of the, the core teachings that I think all the different schools of Buddhism have in common. And, and you know, so, so often these four are, are expressed as there's the truth of suffering or stress. There's the truth of the cause of that suffering, which is clinging, grasping. There's the truth of the end of suffering or freedom from suffering. When that grasping is released, that suffering is, is ended. And there's the path to, to, um, to, you know, there's a path of practice, the path of the end of suffering, which sometimes includes the eightfold path. You know, so this is kind of classical Buddhist teaching. Um, there is a teacher who I am quite fond of, who I consider in some way as part of my own lineage, even though she was a Zen teacher in a, in a somewhat different tradition. Uh, but her name was Joko Beck. I don't know if anyone knows who, who she was or remembers her. She passed away about five years ago, I think, and she was in her late 90s, so she had lived quite a long life. And she was a teacher at the Zen Center of San Diego. And the reason I bring her up is that she, she had a, um, I think they chanted this at her center, but it was a, it was kind of a principles of practice chant, but in a way it's a reformulation of the Four Noble Truths. And um, I'd, I'd just like to share it and maybe and talk about it a little bit. But um, so in an, you know, it, it's a little poetic in, in, in a different way. But it, so in this formulation of these four, it starts with, um, Caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering. 
caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering. And the second line is holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. So holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. And each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. And then being just this moment, compassion's way. Being just this moment, compassion's way. Um, so maybe I'll share it again. Caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's way. Um, so you can kind of see how that resonates for you. Um, I think, uh, I mean, there's a few things I wanted to say about it, but I think we all know the experience, I mean, especially in doing this, these long periods of sitting and being with ourselves. What is it like to be caught in a self-centered dream? You know, and this is, um, at least speaking for myself, I'm very familiar with this, <laughs> you know, this movement of mind. And I, I love the word caught because that's, you know, that's actually how it feels, that it's like um, we get caught um, in various ways. And um, so caught in a self-centered dream, and then holding to self-centered thoughts. The way I understand the word holding is this, this, this way in our body, we can hold certain thoughts certain patterns of thinking, patterns of being. Um, and the interesting thing is that when we change our posture, um, we think different thoughts. You know, it's like this, the mind and the body are so connected. In our uh, discussion group, we were talking a little bit about posture and slouching, you know, versus sitting upright and, 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 and having the noticing that, you know, even going through the day, I might slouch or do something. And I shared that um, I've, I had the experience, especially when I first started practicing, that sitting upright, sitting straight felt very strange. And it not only felt strange because I think I was used to slouching and I wasn't used to sitting this way, but it almost felt a little bit arrogant or a little bit like, who are you to sit so straight, so upright? You know, it's kind of chest puffed out or something. You know, I have this idea of how it felt, how it looked. And I realized that it was connected to um, ideas I had and, and ideas I had about myself and um, self-image and, um, and, and, learning to embody the posture somehow seemed to 
bring or give confidence. You know, it was it, it was like through the posture, through this assuming this position of strength, um, it actually cultivated strength and it cultivated trust and and so just to you know just to explore um, for yourself you know uh, this connection between mind and body and um, do I have the right to take my place on the cushion do I have the right to sit here and um, um, be sit right in the center of my life, right in the center of my experience. And if I feel like I don't, you know, what's that about? What's um, just, just to, you know, without judgment, without anything to, it can be a wonderful exploration. Um, so uh, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Um, I think even though it it sounds simple to say something like to be to be just this moment or to just see or just hear or just feel um, is quite challenging and I, I think one reason it's challenging is that um, when we're just here in the simplicity of the moment we have a direct encounter with impermanence. We have a direct encounter with the changing nature of things. You know, this is the um, this is the Dharma. This is the truth of how things are. That thing, um, the nature of experience is that it's uncertain. Um, it's unpredictable. Um, it's not stable in the way that we sometimes might like it to be. And I think there's just something very human in um, resisting that. And, you know, I notice one of the things I've noticed as a parent um, that comes into, uh, you know, has come into real focus for me in having young children is that children crave and thrive on stability, you know, routine. It's like we do the same thing every day. We do the same thing, you know, the nighttime routine is the same, the morning routine is the same. The, and even, I, I must read the same five books over and over, you know, hundreds of times. And then I sometimes I change a word, or I'll change like milk to almond milk. You know, so you know, I'll throw in a little, and they're like, Papa, come on, just read it the right way. You know, and they, they want to hear it exactly the same way. They, you know, and um, and what I think is that maybe when children have that kind of stability and that kind of predictability, it gives them a, a base, a foundation to go into, to le go outside of the family, whether it's going to school or going into the world, and. Um, and feel secure and feel like I can go and meet challenges and meet new people because they know that something is stable and something is there and something is, um, they have that kind of foundation. So, um, so we need that, 
you know, and every, you know, even here at, at IRC, um, it's predictable. We have the schedule. We have the, you know, you know what you can expect when you come into the Dharma hall. You know what you can expect. The, the, the rituals around the meal, around, you know, everything is kind of, um, in some ways, the same. And that structure, I think, somehow supports a willingness to open to the unknown. When we have that level of stability, then it gives us more confidence and more ease and well-being. From that well-being, we're able to little by little um, encounter impermanence, encounter the way things change. Um, so um, one of the ways that I think we tend to um, filter impermanence or we tend to mediate this kind of truth of change is through our thinking, through our mind. And so we project onto the future. Um, I'm definitely a, um, a planner. I wouldn't say I'm a good planner, but I, <laughs> I wouldn't say my plans ever particularly work out, but I've spent many, many meditation retreats planning, you know, planning the next week, the next month, the next retreat, which is surely going to be better than this one, the next, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, it's like this way of trying to put certainty, trying to put, um, uh, trying to, trying to know what's unknowable. And so you can, the mind just, you know, will project onto that or, you know, or we go into the past, um, or we, um, we spend a lot of time thinking and reflecting about what we want, you know, our desires. Um, this is okay right now, but um, uh, it's a lot more pleasant to think about, you know, what, what I'm going to eat when I leave here, or what I'm going to do. Or, um, so the mind goes off into these, these places. And, and the Buddha talked about this and said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but yes, we get caught in a self-centered dream and there are five kinds of these dreams, five versions of these dreams, which are in some way versions of the same thing. Um, and, um, so sometimes th these are, these five are, are called the five hindrances. We've heard this word, heard, we talk about it you know, most retreats, we talk about it because this is what most of us are, are dealing with. Um, and so I'll, I'll just say the five, which are sensual desire and then aversion. So these are kind of like, I want it. I don't want it. You know, they're two sides of the same coin. And then, um, the next two have to do with our energy. There's restlessness and anxiety on one hand, and then fatigue and dullness, you know, sometimes called sloth and torpor. And then the fifth one is doubt. So 
it, it may sound like a little bit like an abstract list or why is, you know, why is this so important? But the idea is that these are the five primary ways that the mind uh, uses to escape the moment, avoid the moment. So if I'm sitting here, I'm bored, I'm suffering in some way, I, I may notice that rather than being with the unpleasantness of my knee pain, there's something more pleasant out there. And that's a, a, a nice juicy fantasy about, you know, whatever, whatever I, whatever I want. And if I start thinking about that, I'm going to have some nice pleasant feelings. And those pleasant feelings are go going to replace this unpleasant feeling of um, my knee pain. You know, it's, it's just one example, but to just give you a flavor of the way the hindrances can work, that they are um, um, you know, so one way of understanding them is, is their unconscious strategies um, of, of in, in, some, in some way, avoiding what's happening now. So we escape into some pleasant fantasy. You know, maybe that would be categorized under the hindrance of desire. Or maybe it's that um, I'm really irritated. I'm really angry with someone because they, um, their pants make too much noise when they sit down and wrestle or, you know, whatever, or they're breathing too loudly or, um, and, um, so I sort of get into this story of what I don't like. Um, uh, sometimes, uh, fatigue and kind of dullness, this uh, kind of sloth and torpor, it's very, very common that this arises during meditation retreat. Um, sometimes it may be that we're, we're tired and, and we need to rest more. Um, but often it's that, um, it's the kind of sleepiness that comes up when we don't want to do something. You know, I know for myself, if it's like, there's something like a pile of paperwork on the table and it's like, 5 p.m. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm too tired to deal with that right now. You know, it's like we, we can't access the energy. Um, or on the other side of that, there's this restlessness, this anxiety. Um, it's like the energy is out of balance in this other direction. Um, and then doubt, the fifth hindrance is um, doubt about the practice. Um, doubt about the teachings, doubt about my ability to do this, doubt if um, this makes any sense, you know, it's like, um, so it's this kind of questioning that, and doubt is said to be actually the most dangerous of the five hindrances, because doubt is something that can get us to stop practicing. If we believe our doubt, um, you know, We can we can give up. We can we can we can we can walk away from um, you know something that might be uh, a tremendously important, tremendously valuable thing to us because we're because we're hypnotized by that kind of 
self-talk. Um, and doubt is also very um, dangerous in the sense it's hard to see. It's hard to see our doubt. It's you know, it, because doubt mask doubt can masquerade as wisdom. You know, um, I know sometimes I'll have this thought of like, especially on retreat, it's like, well, you should just skip the next sitting. And, you know, you really need to you know, just take care of yourself and rest. And you know, and sometimes that's, I think for some people that's. That, that is wisdom, but I think often for me, it's <laughs> a combination of doubt and sloth and torpor and, <laughs> you know, all these things. So um, just to say a little bit about the hindrances as a whole, these are um, universal. They said to be common to everyone. They're, and so as much as possible, when we see you know, these movements of mind as hindrances, we're able not to take them so personally, you know? So just, just knowing that and remembering that this is what the mind does. This is what happens. Um, so they're universal. They come and they go. Um, and one of the wonderful practices in working with a hindrance is to wait and is to be there and watch it come watch it arise almost like this wave. Um, I've worked with desire a lot like this, you know, of this wave of desire can arise. And um, rather than acting on it, rather than doing anything, rather than going into the, the images or the, the story, just to feel it in the body and watch it arise, not moving, not doing anything, and then watching it crest and kind of dissolve. And it can give a tremendous amount of freedom, you know, and the same thing with anger, the same thing with any of these hindrances, that to just, as Inez talked about this morning, what is it to be this mountain, this mountain that is not moving, that's so stable, so solid? You know, the mountain isn't, isn't really bothered by, you know, sometimes it's raining, sometimes it's snowing, sometimes it's, it's, there's sun or there's wind, um, but the mountain is just there. It's just um, grounded. And when we can be present and be mindful enough to know, wow, there's this storm of emotion or storm of feeling or storm of grief, of sadness, loneliness, um, lust, uh, shame, you know, all the different visitors that come. Um, but, to, but to be unmoved, to be there, to be present, to be mindful, to be noticing the impact, but somehow holding it all, that gives a tremendous amount of freedom. You know, it's like this understanding of practice that we're creating we're, we're widening and, and widening the self. We're creating this container that can hold all of who we are, all of our experience. Um, we can tolerate the whole range of human emotions. Um, so the hindrances are, um, rather than seeing them as obstacles to practice, 
um, if we if we can meet them with mindfulness, they can bring a lot of wisdom, a lot of understanding. Um, you know, just to see what what are what are it's almost like taking an inventory of the mind and to see what's going on here. What am I concerned about? What am I preoccupied with? Often I have no idea what I'm um, worried about or what I'm stressed about or thinking about until I start sitting and noticing these thoughts and noticing these feelings like, oh, wow, that conversation had a bigger impact than I thought or, 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 or that feeling or that um, you know, you know, whatever it is that that's going on for us, we just start to really see. Um, this is what's this is what's in the heart right now, and to meet it with mindfulness, meet it with compassion, find it in the body. This is another very useful um, tool for working with these hindrances. Is as much as possible to drop out of the story and into the body. And so where do I feel this sadness? Where do I feel this um, anxiety? Um, oh, I feel the heart is racing, or I feel this kind of um, weight in the pit of the belly. And when I, when I notice that, I can bring awareness to that area. Some, you can even put a hand there, put your hand on your heart, put your hand on the belly, and just breathe with it and be with it and, uh, you know, kind of accompany it. Um, so it's like getting closer. It's getting more intimate. There's one level of our experience that's involved in the story and the ideas. And, but to drop down, to feel it in the body uh, can be tremendously helpful. Um, and then we might start to notice that it changes, that it moves, that it's not one thing or physical pain for dealing with that. It's like, it's this dynamic process. Um, so, um, so, so when difficulties arise in the practice, they um, can be wonderful opportunities. Um, it's like we can have one idea of practice as aiming towards a state of peace, you know, or some state that is very different from, maybe very different from the current state we're in. Um, maybe this idea of peace includes not having much thought, you know, the kind of, and, 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 th and those states happen, those states for sure they happen. But the thing to remember about those states is that they too are impermanent. They too are changing. So if I'm only happy, if I'm only free, if I'm only at peace, um, it, when there's no thoughts, no problems, no hindrances, um, you know, then I don't know how, how helpful that, that peace will be or relevant to our life. Um, but there's another kind of uh, vision of practice where rather than getting our mind, arranging our minds in a certain way that we think they should be, it's like making peace with the contents of our mind as they are. You know, so if a hindrance is there, working with that, being with that, if, if, 
if there's joy, if there's sadness, if there's um, discomfort in the body, whatever is happening right now, um, making space for it, welcoming it. Um, and, and if we think about practice in this way, we can practice in any state, in any, um, anything that arises, we have the confidence that we can meet it with mindfulness. Um, it's workable, it's meetable. It may, you know, it may not be what we want, but we're, we're, learn we're growing in our capacity to hold what's happening and to meet it with wisdom, to meet it with kindness and peace. Um, and I think if, if we have that understanding of this journey, then each moment is, is, um, has its own absolute value. So, you know, Joko Beck says in this, you know, so caught in a self-centered dream, only suffering. When I'm caught, when there's no awareness, when there's no mindfulness, I'm just, I'm just spinning, right? I'm just, I'm just totally in the dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, you know, the ways we hold these thoughts, these, these conditioned ways of being in our body, exactly the dream. And she goes on to say, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. You know, so what is it to be so open, so receptive that each moment is teaching us, each moment is, sh is showing us um, how to relate, how to live. Um, each moment is offering its own request. And there's this great uh, vignette about Suzuki Roshi, who is the uh, founding teacher of the San Francisco Zen Center. And he, in the Zen tradition, you know, kind of, you really, you take care of the master. So the master has an attendant who uh, you know, kind of helps helps them. And, and Suzuki Roshi was an older man, and and his attendant was a young woman, and she was uh, drying Suzuki Roshi's feet. I don't know if he got out of he washed his feet or something, and she was drying his feet with a towel. And then she did something a little unusual. She pulled his toe, <laughs> and um, and he 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 looked at her and he said, "That's one of the qualities of the Buddha." is to know what someone needs and give it to them. <laughs> you know, so to, to respond to the moment, to be so in tune that, you know, rather than being up in my head, this is what I'm supposed to do, this is what I have to do, this is, you know, we're allowing ourselves to be, um, to be continually uh, receiving, and learning and in relationship. We're always in relationship with the world. Um, so each moment, life as it is, is the teacher. Life as it is, is always teaching us. Um, uh, and then being just this moment, compassion's way. Um, I think that one of the things we discover in this practice is that um, 
it takes a lot of compassion. We need the compassion is sort of what softens, what moistens um, the heart. And to be willing to hang in there for ourselves and accompany our experience moment to moment to moment. Not only um, do we need to bring in love and compassion and kindness, but in doing this practice, it, it, uh, it creates compassion. It's like, you know, so compassion is meeting, um, meeting suffering with a heart that's open. And the more we open our heart, um, um, that's what this practice is, you know, opening our heart and this willingness to be touched, this willingness to be vulnerable, this willingness to feel what we're feeling. And, and that's what cre creates compassion. And when we, when we can f meet our own suffering and bring compassion to ourselves, then that's something we can offer to others. Because I understand myself, I understand you, I understand others, and I can offer that that compassion. Um, so, um, so practice is this journey, journey, journey of becoming ourselves. Um, and this willingness to be ourselves in all the different guises, all the different forms, all the different, um, uh, moods and feelings and, oh yeah, this too is me. Yeah, yeah, this too is me. Being willing to continually accept. Um, I wanted to share a poem, which is conveniently called The Journey. It's by Mary Oliver. And I think it's, you know, in a poetic way, um, you know, expressing expressing this feeling. She says, One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voice behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of the clouds and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life that you could save. I 
think um, the fact that each of us are here, that each of us have come to this practice or doing this practice, it means that we're already well on this journey and that something in us, uh, deep inside of us, brought us here. You know, we might have some, some, some rational explanation for why we're here, or we might have not have any idea why we're here. Um, but something deep inside of us, you know, that voice, that authentic voice, um, is telling us which way to go. And, um, and, and I love this idea of, um, as, as we listen to our own, uh, wisdom, the, our own voice, uh, our own authenticity, um, it takes us, as Mary Oliver says, deeper and deeper into the world, you know, this practice is not an escape from the world. It's not a way of uh, leaving behind or transcending or getting to some place once and for all where I'll be untouched, invulnerable, um, even though we may, I mean, that sounds kind of nice actually, <laughs> but um, to go deeper and deeper into the world and, and this idea of to go deeper into the world is at the same time going deeper and deeper into ourselves, you know? So the self and the world, you know, um, become one some way. And um, so anyway, this, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be on this journey with you. And um, the other image I have that I find uh, very lovely in terms of this idea of becoming myself is um, about the, the sculptor, uh, an artist, Michelangelo, um, who in describing how he sculpted, how he created, He's, you know, so like, you know, he's this, he made David, right? He was in Florence, this, this amazing figure. And, um, what, what he said was that all he did was released these images from the stone. He freed them from the stone. You know, it's like, so he just chip, chip, chipped away you know, this big block of marble and chip, chip, chip away at everything that's not David. And then what's left is, you know, is David. And so this, this idea of practice is, um, the more we're willing to be here, to be who and what we are in this moment, um, we're letting go of what's extra. We're letting go of what's not true, of what's not needed. Um, we don't need to, um, uh, invent, uh, you know, the image of David. We just, you know, it's, it's just like letting go of everything that's not me. That's not who I really am. It's not what's needed. 
Um, so this process of 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 shedding of of um, uh, releasing of uh, shedding all these skins that uh, maybe served a purpose at some point, but maybe aren't needed anymore. And in that process, we find our uh, authentic voice. We're able to take our seat and 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 be here. And and um, you know, as the story of the Buddha's awakening, you know, touching the ground. I'm here. You know, I have a right to be here. Um, and, um, you know, I always find that, uh, very poignant, very beautiful that, you know, we're, we're, so it's almost, it's this journey of reclaiming, reclaiming, um, what is our, our birthright, reclaiming what, um, you know, who and what we are. So. Thank you very much for your attention. Maybe let's just sit for a minute. The One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life. Each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voice behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of the clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life that you could save.